0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Well, folks, the day has finally come. We've reached the end of our countdown. It's been pretty great, hasn't it? We've heard from Walter Isaacson and Adam Grant, Heather McGee, Amanda Ripley, and so many other great thinkers. Today, we're sharing last year's most popular book bite. This is the summary that our Next Big Idea app users listen to more than any other. It's a book that was praised by our curator, Daniel Pink, as profound. Adam Grant called it, quote, the most important book ever written about time management. The book is 4,000 weeks. Time Management for Mortals by Oliver Berkman. How much time do you have on this planet? If you live to be 80, you'll get about 4,000 weeks. It's a lot, but not nearly enough to complete the potentially infinite number of things you may want to get done. In 4,000 weeks, Oliver encourages us to take a step back from day-to-day busyness and look at our tasks in the context of our lives as a whole. Here's Oliver.
1: Hello, I'm Oliver Berkman. I'm an author and a journalist, and for many years I wrote a weekly column on psychology and other things for The Guardian newspaper called This Column Will Change Your Life. My latest book is called 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals, and it's an attempt to rethink the question of how to make the best use of your time once you really take into account how little of it we get and why I think it's actually empowering and, and really a big relief Confront our limitations in this way instead of constantly struggling to avoid thinking about them. It grew out of my own history as a a so called productivity geek. Uh, Being a productivity geek is a bit like being passionate about something like rock climbing or poetry, except you're passionate about crossing items off your to do list. Anyway, it grew from realizing that all these techniques that I pursued so energetically were never going to deliver the feeling of total control and perfect optimization that I thought I wanted from them. There's an alternative path, a path that's much more meaningful in the end, and I'm going to share with you now five big ideas about it from my book. Big idea number one is that there will always be too much to do. This sounds like a recipe for despair, right? But I think it's incredibly empowering. We live in a world of effectively infinite inputs, So there's no particular limit to the number of emails you could receive, demands your boss could make. By the same token, there's no real limit to the number of exotic travel destinations you might wish to visit, or business ideas you might wish to launch. And yet, we are finite creatures. Uh, If you live to be 80, you'll have had about 4,000 weeks on the planet. So there's a mismatch between the infinite inputs and our very finite capacities. Indeed, it's actually worse than that because of something I call the efficiency trap, When you get more efficient at processing things, at doing your work, at answering your emails, you actually end up generating more things that you have to do. And yet, I think most of our ideas about time management are premised on this notion that one day, if we try hard enough, if we really found the right techniques and applied sufficient self-discipline, we might get to a place where we'd feel like we were on top of everything, the masters of our time, able to handle whatever might be thrown at us. I remember I was sitting on a park bench in Brooklyn one winter morning several years ago, feeling anxious about having even more things to get done that day than usual and trying to figure out a really ingenious schedule for getting them all done, when it suddenly hit me that none of these productivity techniques were ever going to work in the sense of giving me these unlimited superhuman capacities. Finite creatures can't do an infinite amount of things. It's just math. And I think once you let this truth permeate you a bit, That's when you get to drop this impossible quest and bring your focus and your time and your energy to doing a handful of things that really matter and actually getting them completed. (music) Big idea number two is that distraction is an inside job. We like to criticise Silicon Valley for creating these diabolical social media platforms and devices and all these other things that steal our attention away from what we really care about. And I think we're right to criticise Silicon Valley for that. But there's another side to this story, and it's what the poet Mary Oliver once called the intimate interrupter. The call to distract ourselves is coming from inside the house. We feel, in other words, an inner urge to distract ourselves from whatever it is we really care about. Maybe it's a challenging creative project or a difficult but important conversation with a spouse. We actually want to distract ourselves and go and do something less important instead. At first glance, this seems like a really weird phenomenon. Why would we prefer, why would it feel better to waste an hour doing something we don't care about instead of using it for something that's close to our heart? Again, though, I think this is a case of just how uncomfortable it makes us to face up to our built-in human limitations. When you focus on something that matters to you, you're forced to accept your finitude. You know, you have to accept that you might not have the talent to write the novel you're working on, uh, that you can't control how it will be received that the conversation with your spouse might leave you feeling emotionally vulnerable. So you're forced to see that doing stuff that matters entails discomfort, entails confronting your limited control. And that's scary. So of course, you'd rather hurry off into cyberspace instead, where you get to feel like a little god, you know, like the master of your domain. So that's what I mean when I say that distraction is an inside job. We sort of collaborate willingly with this disruption to our focus. But the huge good news about this is that once you see what's going on here, You can feel that discomfort, that discomfort of doing what matters, and you can realise that it won't destroy you, that it's not so bad. You can take a more mindful approach to the discomfort, not trying to stamp it out, but also not letting it dictate your behaviour. Then you get to keep doing the thing that mattered to you, and you get to spend your day doing the things you care about, instead of having pointless arguments and reading irrelevant gossip online. Big idea number three is that patience is a superpower. Look, I think I can guess what you're thinking when you hear the word patience. It's basically the most boring virtue in the world. It feels so passive and unexciting. And if someone tells you that some activity is gonna require you to be really patient, your first reaction might well be that you want absolutely nothing to do with it. But in the book, I explore the insights of a Harvard art historian, Professor Jennifer Roberts, who makes a powerful argument that in our world, in a world that's geared for acceleration and that's getting faster and faster by the month, the ability to let things take the time they take is actually an incredibly powerful way to exert influence over the world. She has her students choose a painting or a sculpture and then she tells them to go and spend three full hours looking at it, which is an exercise I undertook for the book too. And it's kind of magical because after an hour or so of immense discomfort, it really isn't fun at first, you start to actually see things in the painting that you would never otherwise have seen. And I think this generalises to all sorts of aspects of life, to making progress on creative projects, to parenting, to relationships, and very strikingly to reading. Uh, If you can resist the urge to hurry, if you can slow down to the speed that the activity demands, even though it feels uncomfortable to do so at first, even though it challenges that desire you have to dictate how fast reality goes, That's when you really get to grips with the thing you're doing. That's when you can really engage and make solid and tangible progress. Big idea number four is that a plan is just a thought. One of the other big ways in which we struggle to gain this feeling of control over time is that we try to achieve a feeling of certainty about how the future is going to unfold. When in fact, by definition, because it's in the future, we are never going to attain that certainty. I'm not suggesting that we give up planning completely, either planning our own personal lives or planning at an organisational level. But we go wrong, psychologically speaking, I think, when we treat that plan as an attempt to know that we can feel certain about the future from the vantage point of the present. What we forget, uh, to quote the meditation teacher, Joseph Goldstein, is that a plan is just a thought. It's a present moment statement of intent. It's useful for choosing how to act in the moment, but it's a recipe for permanent anxiety if you're sort of constantly moving into the future, waiting to see if things will conform to your plans for them or not. So full disclosure here, I come from a family of compulsive planners, You know, people who like to build in seven extra hours to get to the airport, just to be sure that nothing will go wrong. And of course, if you leave seven hours to get to the airport, the chances are good that you won't miss your plane. You'll just waste a few hours of your life that you could have used more meaningfully. But in fact, time is a really strange thing you can never be certain that something won't cause you to miss your plane, right? Because that's all in the future when you're deciding to set out seven hours early. And so the anxiety is never fully allayed. You never get to really know that things are going to go the way you want. The real truth here, I think, is that we never really have time at all, not in the sense that we have money or have our physical possessions. We don't get to control what's coming next. No one does. The spiritual teacher, Jiddu Krishnamurti, used to say that the whole secret of his incredible peace of mind was that, and I'm quoting here, I don't mind what happens. I don't mind what happens. I don't think that means we shouldn't fight for a better and more just world or that we should uh, not try to stop bad things happening in the future. And I don't think most of us are ever going to reach his level of pure serenity in any case. But for me, that idea of not minding what happens embodies this really deep truth but planning is something to be held lightly, to be used, absolutely, to help you make decisions about what you want to do right now, but without this constant tension of needing the world to turn out the way you want it to, to move instead through the world with curiosity about what will happen next, instead of this really binary demand that it turns out according to your plans and doesn't uh, do something different instead. And big idea number five, you're not such a big deal. So there's a great thought experiment that I write about in the book by the late philosopher Brian McGee. He said, you know, imagine someone who's turning 100 today, and imagine that there was someone else who turned 100 the day that person was born, and so on back through history. So you can imagine all these 100-year lifespans in a chain, end to end. Well, when you look at things like that, the Renaissance was six lifetimes ago. Jesus was around 20 lifetimes ago. The Golden Age of the Pharaohs was about 35 lifetimes ago. It's nothing. It's nothing. Human civilization as a whole has really not been around very long at all, and so by comparison an individual life is obviously incredibly tiny. This is the kind of talk that's liable to provoke an existential crisis, but I actually think there's a really uplifting message in this fact. First of all, if you're like many of us, you go through life agonising about the various decisions you have to make and it can be a huge relief to realise that on a cosmic level the stakes aren't really that high. If you're scared about launching a certain creative project or reaching out to a certain person, you might as well do it because it doesn't matter that much, not on a cosmic level if it goes wrong. And additionally, as another philosopher, Ido Landau, has uh, pointed out, when we think of ourselves as really grandiose, really important in the scheme of things, it actually leads to a big problem when it comes to creating a meaningful life, which is that we, we set the bar for what counts as a meaningful life far too high. It's like you can only count your life as meaningful if you changed the course of world events, or became incredibly famous, or invented a path-breaking technology, or wrote books that were as good as Leo Tolstoy's. If instead we sort of cut everything back down to size, drop back down into the reality of our situation, one of the things you see is that actually far more things might count as meaningful ways to spend your time on Earth, even ordinary things. From this perspective, you know, cooking a meal for your family that's meaningful. Creating things that help or entertain even just a small number of people is meaningful. Uh, International fame isn't necessarily required. Making some tiny contribution to the betterment of the environment or your neighbourhood or the political culture, that matters even if you don't solve all the biggest problems yourself. All sorts of things, in fact, that you're already doing right now might count as more meaningful than you'd realised. And then you know, you get to breathe a sigh of relief. Your shoulders can drop and you can be happy, I think, in the knowledge that you really are using your time, your limited time in a way that matters. Well, that's everything for now. Thank you for listening. And I really hope you enjoy the book. Thank
0: you, Oliver. And thanks to all the authors featured in this series. We're really honored that they've chosen to be part of the Next Big Idea community. And while today is the last time, for a while at least, that we'll be publishing a Book bite on this feed, you can listen to hundreds more in the Next Big Idea app. There is no better way to get smart fast. With Book Bites, you can read a book and the time it takes to floss three times before you go to the dentist to make up for the fact that you haven't done it in a month. Just search for Next Big Idea in your app store. You may be wondering, what's happening next with this show? Well, we'll be back next week with a new season of incredible interviews. You can look forward to a full interview with Oliver. He sat down with our curator, Malcolm Gladwell as well as Jill Lepore, Paul Bloom, Susan Cain, Daniel Pink, David Chalmers, Ray Dalio, and a bunch of other extraordinary writers, that season starts February 24th. How have you liked this daily book bite format? We'd love to know your thoughts. Send us an email at podcast at nextbigideaclub.com. I'm your host, Rufus Griskam. See you next week.